0: And welcome to 100 campaigns that change the world. This is a new podcast about different campaigns that have changed things in the world in some way. Some might be smaller scale, some might be bigger and more dramatic in their impact, but they all involve people or organisations getting get together and changing things for the better. So, I might cover international campaigns like those on tax or debt, or perhaps campaigns that might be a bit more domestic or even local issues uh, close to me in London, where I where I live. Or I might do historical issues like slavery or the suffragettes, or even maybe advertising campaigns that have changed something important. Who knows? Uh, but the idea is to interview people at the centre or near the centre of those campaigns and find out what made them successful, as well as what challenges they may have overcome. I might not be able to produce a podcast that often because I've got a day job as a campaigns consultant, but I hope to be able to fit in enough of these to make them a fairly regular occurrence. So do check back. You should be able to download the podcast from iTunes and other places, and when I work out what those other places are, we'll let you know. Um, But I hope uh, you will listen and give me feedback Give me ideas for future podcasts and future um, subjects for those those podcasts. And also, um, of course, tell your friends and your colleagues about, about the podcast and get them to subscribe. Okay, let's move on to the first pilot episode, which features David Hillman. My first guest is David Hillman. He's a longtime campaigner and colleague. And he cut his teeth uh, on the anti-apartheid campaign before going on to work on another hugely successful campaign uh, to ban landmines. And then also uh, the successful campaign to uh, cancel debt for developing countries. He's currently director of Stamp Out Poverty. He's been working for a number of years on new sources of development finance and led work for the in the UK and internationally on the financial transactions tax. In February 2010, he helped create the Robin Hood Tax Campaign, which is a network of more than 100 UK charities, trade unions, faith organisations and green groups. In 2013, David was awarded the Sheila McKechnie Foundation Achievement Award for his contribution to campaigning and to social and political change. Thanks, David, for taking the time out of your busy schedule to speak with me today. Uh, now, you and I go uh, way back, don't we? I mean, we work together on the campaign that you are still running for what was back then called the Tobin Tax campaign. Can you tell us a bit about how it all came together?
1: Absolutely. And I mean, just to, to preface this, because there's lots of terms here, the financial transaction tax or the Robin Hood tax, but it's essentially a campaign to tax the kind of financial transactions that, by and large, ordinary people don't do, like trading in things like bonds and derivatives. And these are carried, uh, these are carried out almost exclusively by financial firms, such as banks and hedge funds. So it's essentially rich companies trading billions. Um, and the financial transaction tax, depending on how you apply it, can either be set at a very low rate, to skim this enormous market, essentially, to get revenue. Or, if you set it at high rates, then its job is to reduce profit margins, to disincentivize certain activities, uh, and therefore kind of change trading behaviour. And this motivation of changing trading behaviour was the purpose of the original token tax campaign, which, as you said, yeah. we go all the way back to for, the, for war and want being... Um, Uh, linked to it. So 20 years ago, that motivation was all about how do we do something in response to the Southeast Asian crisis and all this financial speculation um, or uh, attacking countries like Indonesia and Thailand. Um, And so um, one difference from the campaign back then to what we do now is then it was really all about foreign exchange, all about Currencies, that's how the banks were attacking these countries. Whereas since the financial crisis, it changed, it became about taxing all financial transactions. So, essentially, um, in 2002, talking about how it all came together, um, my task was to take Warren Wants' Tobin tax campaign and turn it into a network. Uh, And that caused us to get to about 50 organisations that had bought into the idea. So you had trade unions, you had big development agencies, you had faith groups. Um, And that really really was taking advantage of a, a situation to do with the Millennium Development Goals and looking at new sources of finance for development. So it was very much, it started to do with dealing with changing behaviour, but it then focused much more on the other motivation, which was on the revenue side. So in that phase of time, we had, it was the Tobin Tax Network, that rebranded to Stamp Out Poverty in 2006, and then the big change came with the financial crisis. Um, Because the work we then did basically morphed into the Robin Hood tax campaign, which is now fairly well known, um, and that launched in 2010. And so uh, I'm sure we'll deal with this. There's kind of two phases of the work. There's the work up to the financial crisis that set up kind of the policy work behind these two motivations of revenue and changing of behaviour. And then post-2009... Um, the phase where countries started to adopt doing it Mm. and then we were in a kind of very serious countries were actually starting to implement this proposal and that's kind of...
0: I mean, and that's quite a long time, obviously a long time period that you've you've talked about. Mm. But can can you talk a bit about, if you like, what's been achieved by the campaign? What are the sort of highlights for you? And also, you know, has all of this campaigning made any difference to... You know, to what happens in the financial markets, or how much money has been raised.
1: Um, I mean, in terms of um, achievements, uh, I would say, in the last few years, you will you've seen like in 2012, France implemented a financial transaction tax. 2013, Italy implemented financial transaction tax. Last year, 2016, the Democrats adopted the FTT as part of their policy platform Um, earlier this year the Labour Party have implemented not implemented the night government but they have adopted the uh, financial transaction tax as part of their policy so were they to come into power um, we've been assured it would be in the first budget they would modernise the existing stamp duty of chairs and this would mean that uh, over the course of parliament um, the exchequer would get an extra £25 billion worth of revenue, um, which would fund the anti-austerity agenda of the Labour Party, uh, and hopefully in government. So these that's just to give you a sense of the achievements, but yeah. um, I, I would go back even further than that. When we opened up the idea of um, bridging the funding gap between the ODA pledges, and what it would actually pay for to meet the Millennium Development Goals. If you like, at the the outset of this story, we were seeing whether we could exploit that political space. The people like Gordon Brown, Jack Chirac in France, the president of France, were talking about how to pay for the Millennium Development Goals. But it was very clear that the sums didn't add up. So we went, well, look, there's... Why don't you use innovative sources of finance? And we was, were talking about taxing the currency markets. Um, and this uh, led to two kind of approaches, two countries buying into it. France and the UK were buying into it. Gordon Brown looking at innovative in the form of a kind of blended finance, sort of public-private borrowing partnership kind of idea. But France... Very much along the lines of a solidarity levy. Why don't you tax a globalized activity like finance, like aviation, and effectively redistribute from the winners of globalization to those that have been left behind? Mm-hmm. And we were, had totally bought into solidarity levies. you I know mean, basically, the, the financial transaction tax taxing currencies in this way is about creating a solidarity levy. Um, and although we didn't see um that being adopted in 2006 or in, in that phase, the policy makers we were talking to in France went, look, currency is too difficult policy-wise we need to get this to go through, to actually, not policy-wise, but actually enact it. But aviation, I think we can do that. So as a result of the work we were pushing for to try to get Currencies taxed. We ended up with an aviation tax, um, which was launched in 2006, called Unitaid, which was just essentially an extra euro on the price of air tickets, um, and that went into a fund for TB, malaria, um, TB, HIV, TB, and malaria. Um, and since then, it's raised something like five billion euros. Well. So, although you might look and say, well, the the actual achievements are because you've managed to get the FTT policies implemented in certain places, actually, the campaign success is to do with um, working in this policy space, identifying that policy space and pushing for a big idea, which may in itself not... You might not get it immediately or you might get it down the line, but you may still get... Um, a good result, an achievement, um, mm. off the back of what you're doing.
0: So in, a sense, in a, so, in a sense, you're saying you need to be sort of flexible within with your bigger goal in mind. Is, is that right? Flexible over what you can accept and what you what you think's you know worth having, but then ha- still have your eye on on, the, on your longer term goal. Is that? Is well, that I would
1: say it's more that if you shoot, you know, if you you shoot for the stars you often get the moon. Uh, Mm. I think it's it's better like that because um, we were very keen on the aviation tax because it was a proof of concept Mm. of the financial transaction tax. So we didn't like abandon the financial transaction tax and say, hey, okay, we'll settle for this. Um, It was actually very much part of, great, this is a proof of concept. Remember that the financial transaction tax, as far as we were concerned, was going to raise tens of billions it was a really, and we we mm. still would say its potential is 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 enormous without destroying the financial markets, um, and um, and 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 this aviation tax was going to relatively speaking not raise that much money. I mean, it's mm. not it's still an inconsiderable amount to raise, but um, um, but we definitely saw the value of it. As the proof of concept, if you can do this, why don't you then do the bigger one? Literally a pilot scheme.
0: What happens when you know you talk about Shellac and Brown? Um, but governments move on, change policies. So how do you deal with that side of uh, you know you're in a long-term campaign, but you've got governments changing, ministers changing. You know, advisors changing all the time. How how do you how do you deal with that? How do you keep yeah. the issue on the agenda?
1: Sometimes that plays to you, plays for you. and Sometimes that plays against. So, for instance, we spent a lot of time incubating the financial transaction tax in this uh, area called the leading group of countries. Uh, it's called the leading group. There was a group of, of countries. France was fairly dominant in that. Uh, looking at innovative sources of finance. And from that phase 2006 to 2009, that was, um, or even more, even longer into 2011-12, that was a very, very important forum. Mm. Um, and it meant that the financial transaction tax was placed in front of a lot of um, foreign ministers. We, we definitely were able to incubate the idea there. Um, until it was kind of ready to be born as the Robin Hood tax, if you like, in two thousand and ten. Um, but for all the good work that we did there, it was an external circumstance that changed the ball game, and that was the financial crisis. So, and that that was that played to us massively because it changed the setting from um, these ideas are all very good, but at the moment the banks are financial alchemists, they create money out of nothing, we love them, we tax them, it's fine, leave it. If it's not broke, don't fix it. And then it became broke. And then our policy ideas, we've been talk, banging on about for ages, suddenly uh, they're going, we should take these seriously. Actually, we need to do something about this. Actually, isn't it payback time for the banks? How much have we have we bailed them out? Policymakers are completely changing mm. their approach based on that. So... External circumstances—they play to us now. You were talking about. Our question was external. You know what happens when leaders change or when decision makers change. How, you know, as I say, it can work for you, can work against you. So right now, we've got a serious situation. Happen the European project for the FTT has been going very well over the last few years. I mean, last October, we essentially had ten countries agree what assets are going to be taxed, how they're going to plummet into the system. I mean, we're, this is Germany, France, Italy, Spain. This is a serious shift forward. I mean, when I mentioned about France and Italy, along the way they've done limited um, unilateral financial transaction taxes. But this is a regional, first ever regional bloc doing a, a pretty solid financial transaction tax, um, working together. So last October looking great. And then, you know, a few months ago, a former banker, Macron, has become president of France. And I think we can fairly well say we call it the the 3Ds. It's um, he'll either derail it or he'll dilute it, or, but he'll certainly delay it. Mm. Um, and that that you know after so much work, yeah, sure, it's pretty sobering. Um, and you have to you have to deal with morale, um, your troops. Um, Can get, you know, they've been doing something for a few years and suddenly it's a real bucket of ice cold water being chucked over you and you have to pick yourself up for the next challenge. So, uh, yes, it's absolutely true that these external circumstances you have to adjust to. Um, And I think one of the, I suppose, the advantages of us being relatively small and being kind of paired up with. Other organisations, especially in Europe, that are fairly small, is that we um, are able to quite quickly adjust. We haven't got like a solid, built-in two-year program that you know that takes a long time to adjust to a change. You can't. You you have to adjust fast and. so yeah, we're in the midst of dealing with that in the Macron
0: situation. So you, obviously, you know, you're working across borders and and with with you know working on issues that require work with other countries. How can you say a bit about how you uh, work with other organisations? Is there a David Hillman sitting in every country in Europe, or you presume it's not quite not you don't have a replicated structure in each country? So how how do you? you know, patch together the alliance that makes all of this happen Mm. nationally, you know, nationally, globally, regionally? Well, um,
1: essentially in Europe there's a German campaign, a French campaign, Italian campaign, um, Belgian. Um, There are different levels of capacity. There isn't exactly the equivalent. We've got the most, um, if you like, Solid funding base, which means that I have um, I'm, I'm full time on this, um, and we play a coordinating role with our counterparts in these other countries. Some of which, some of whom are kind of uh, doing both uh, FTT and tax general, general tax justice stuff, tax avoidance, tax havens, secrecy spaces, that kind of stuff. Um, we keep the momentum and capacity going through a weekly European call, um, six monthly face-to-face meetings, and I think the, the frequency and the regularity of that is extremely important. Um, we have a relatively good um, base in terms of getting policy intel, from the different capitals of where what the state of play is, which means that we are fairly sure of how we can best respond with a low degree of resource. So we, we this is this is kind of fine pointed stuff. We know that the, we, we can we will see a problem coming up. And we will then we'll be discussing it and seeing how we can exert the resources we can to deal with this particular thing. And that might be um, we, the French campaign have got to get a meeting with the Elysée. Or, you know, something that is very specific. Or we know that in the policy negotiations there is uh, a lot of doubts being expressed over, say, in taxing derivatives, one particular area. So we immediately get... Um, financial experts that we work with um, to write a policy paper to, share, to say all those concerns don't make any sense I'm a, I'm a financier I, I used to trade derivatives and I can assure you that is not a problem mm-hmm. so it's, it's being able to respond quickly um, so because if you'd like the campaign for us is on two landscapes it's what we're doing in the UK and you will see some progress with Labour and I can talk more about what we do in the UK and then there's been very specifically progress to do with the 10 countries moving forward. Um, so there's not exactly another day before, um, in uh, these countries um, because they're not full-time, but mm. they, they are there. Um, and different campaigns have different strengths. So the German campaign has about 100 different organisations. Next week, for instance, I'll be going to Germany's AGM because Germany and France are absolutely critical. France is, and and the Franco-German axis, is absolutely critical to success. I mean, if France and Germany really wanted to make this happen, they'll make it happen, because they are the stronger countries. And so with France being somewhat of a problem um, now, we have to, and Germany just having had a general election, um, what Germany does and what the German campaign do is really critical. So I'm going to go and spend some time with my German counterparts next week. Um, so it just gives you just gives you just to give you a sense that we work as coordinated as we can in as coordinated uh, a way as we can with limited
0: resources. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take a short uh, break now, but we'll be right back with more from. David and the Robin Hood Tax Campaign. So, welcome back. And we're talking to David Hillman about the Robin Hood Tax campaign, the campaign for a uh, tax on uh, currency and other financial transactions. And David, um, so we've been talking a bit about um, how the campaign's worked over the last fifteen years, and and what have been um, you know some of the success factors in a way, but for. For you personally, what have been some of the highlights of the last fifteen years? Can you think? Can you can you say? I mean, it's it's a long time to be, do it. You know, focused on one thing, and there's you know, people these days have short attention spans.
1: Yeah. Well, um, I mean, there are a number. Um, I think. Um, I mean, looking back at it, speaking at the United Nations for the first time, um, walking into that building. Um, getting um, a sense that you know, the idea has been taken seriously um, I was at a round table um, with the likes of Jeff Sachs I remember going to have a quick word with him because we were both going to be talking from the same kind of position mm. that we need more money for international development and uh, just just popping over to to have a word with it in his ear in, at the UN, I remember, you know, that was like, um, you know, you feel like, yeah, that's, this is why I'm doing this kind of work. Um, then um, another one was when I went to the Financing for Development conference in Doha which was the follow-up one from Monterey, if you remember the 2002 in Monterey, yeah. it was a huge, huge event. And I was speaking at a, um, at a side event. It was, was a, it was one of the biggest side events. It was absolutely packed. I mean, there were three... There were actually... It was about a two-hour event, of which there were like three panels of people. So, yeah, the first panel... So, and the first panel was headed off by uh, Ban Ki-moon. Ban moon was speaking to kick off our side event, Um, and although I wasn't actually on his table, uh, I was on the third table, because the first set of speakers spoke, uh, etc. But anyway, the third one, uh, I was speaking at, and it it was definitely, it was something like 2008, the financial crisis just happened, and... The, you really got a sense this was a tipping point. This was a tipping point moment. This was actually when some people in the room got it, and that there was, they were going to, it was going to follow on, and a number of things did follow on from that. So that for me, were, was a highlight. Not only was it um, a very good speaking event. It was, it was you know, I thought I did a good job, but um, it felt like after a number of years, I was in the right place at the right time with the right people and my message was actually getting through. I think that, that was a big one for mm-hmm. me. And I think of course the launch of the Robin <laughs> Hood Tax came in, campaign in 2010. I mean just, uh, you know, when you do these things and then an amazing product like the Banker film is made by someone like Richard Curtis with, with, with Bill Nye in it and um, you're not doing the advocacy, um, Bill Nye and Richard Curtis are on the breakfast TV couches. Doing your advocacy mm. for you—that was another moment where you go, "Okay, that's why I do this kind of thing. Yeah. That's why I do it." Um, and then this year, with Labour adopting mm. the, you know, that was that was a bit kind of for us.
0: You, you mentioned Bill Nye and um, and the the the, the film and, and and all of that sort of you like popular moment. I mean. This is quite. It's quite. It could be seen. Well, I remember certainly in the early days when we when we were working on it. Um, you know, being quite sort of technical and, and, and boring and and difficult and you know finance and banking and you know so not something that would appeal to you know the average person in the street. How, uh, how important is it, do you think, for your campaign to be popular? versus the sort of more advocacy mode where you're behind the scenes or, you know, doing policy work or uh, lobbying, that, that sort of thing. I mean, how do you know what the right balance is? Can you choose to turn, you know, one knob up and the other one down? Or
1: uh, Well, I think it's horses for courses. Um, I think, you know, when it came to, say, the Labour Party and adopting the financial transaction tax um, you're not going to convince them by showing them a Bill knife. You know, John McDonald was really clear. I had a meeting with him and he said, okay, I think this is a good policy, but I need to have an unimpeachable, authoritative source. This needs to be written by someone who is grounded in the city, etc. And if I have such a, a report that shows me kind of how exactly to do this, and I can go on Newsnight and defend it then um, we're halfway there, we're, in, we're more than halfway there. So we found that particular person and that is highly technical and I would not be spending a lot of time <laughs> going into those details with our 300,000 people on Facebook um, and our over 20,000 Twitter followers. But um, as I say horses for courses, for, for them We are communicating, but non technically. We're talking about the fact that it's a good idea, it's about fairness, we're talking about, um, yeah, I mean, the, the idea of framing and using language that is completely particular to your audience. So there, there's already tapping into a reservoir of the fact that people think that the bankers operate in another universe. The rest of us, they get paid more. Some of these bankers in the first few days of January than everyone else is going to earn in a whole year, um, and that, frankly, it's payback time. So we are often communicating in those quite crude uh, terms to an audience because. They are the ones who are ultimately voting for politicians, and those are the ones that um, you know politicians are looking at in terms of whether this is popular or not.
0: Uh, Were there any? Have there been any times uh, that you recall where you sort of felt like either giving up, or you know that that, there were just real sort of low lights? And you mentioned, uh, you know, obviously the recent Macron uh, victory. But um, whether you know, have there been any um, really sort of soul destroying moments in those <laughs> fifteen years?
1: Um, there are moments in which you can feel. You know, I'm a pretty optimistic guy, and so I don't. I don't. You know, I'm not prone to kind of getting too depressed by things. But there are moments in which you get demoralised, and I think I mentioned before. You just mentioned. The yeah, when the penny dropped about Macron, and the fact that he really is looking after his own economic crowd um, for all the stuff you know he's been saying. And when he got in, for instance, he had a meeting with NGOs and he said, "I want to see the financial transaction tax done this mm-hmm. summer." And then next week he was at a European Council meeting and he said, "Oh, well, we can't do the FTT until um, Brexit is done." You think, oh, the guy's just saying what people want him to say. <laughs> well, he's literally just saying what he, what he expects the people around him yeah. to to be happy with. Um, he has no principles. I mean, I can't see there's like, entirely no principles, but on this matter, so far. And so you kind of you have a, you have this moment of a deep sigh. And you go, okay, so this is what we're dealing with. Um, yeah, so that, 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 you know, and I think that probably, um, a little bit before the UN speech in 2008, this, this side event I mentioned, this French meeting, um, I'd already been doing it for, been working on the campaign for about six years. And I, 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 I thought I've kind of done everything I can. I've got it to a certain point. I've put in my time. Um, and, um, I think I personally felt I was getting close to. Yeah, I think I I, I was going. I wasn't I wasn't depressed by it. I just felt like I'd sort of I'd, I'd done what I had to do up until there, and it was time to move on. But then, within I don't know, a few months as we got to the end of that year, um, I really knew that the financial crisis had changed the landscape. Mm. And I went. You know something. This is the last. This is the last moment I should actually jump off the train. I should stay on the train. Um, and I had no idea that about ten years later i would still be on the train. But it's been just just a very interesting journey.
0: Yeah. I mean, this is it, amazing, and I think um, you know, perhaps it's also um, a cautionary tale for some some NGOs out there some organisations that have campaigns that last for two or three years and expect to achieve you know great things in a short space of time they have very ambitious goals as I'm sure mm. you've seen these sorts mm. of strategies knocking about do you have any sort of words of caution for for them or, or do you think there's still a place for the sort of for those sort of short term campaigns um, I do think that
1: one of the sort of lessons from this work is that perseverance serves. That if you look onto something and you really keep going at it, then you are in the right place to exploit changes in circumstances. When we talked earlier about the externals, either the external things like a, like a financial crisis or changes in leadership one way or another, the sheer longevity of you being on an initiative and just knowing, just being on it all the time, Mm. uh, and hopefully with sufficient resource and connectedness, uh, means that um, this iron in the fire has its moment. It has its moment, and you can then exploit that and get policy change. So that does tend to argue for the importance of longevity and perseverance of campaigns. I'm well aware the problem with that is sustaining capacity over time, sustaining resource and capacity over time. Um, And I I guess that there are are times and moments, certainly for single-issue campaigns, that can be really, really pushed at a particular time and may not need to, and may achieve their goal within Mm. two or three years. Um, but, you know, this is always a big judgment call for the NGO sector about, you know, exactly this. Yeah. Um, and I think we have, I would say that I think the sector has burnt its fingers a bit on trying to do um, short-life initiatives, especially when it says it's, a, it's going to do more than a short-life initiative. You know, it's actually, oh, we're going to do something over, um, yes, it's a fantastic idea, and we're going to do it over a long period of time, but actually they don't, they do it for a year or two because yeah. I think that the, the downside to that is that a lot of uh, goodwill from civil society, from ordinary members of the public um, they invest a lot into it they get really caught up in the idea yeah. and then you, sort of, you, you cut the, the, the floor from underneath them and I don't, th- I don't think that's good practice
0: actually Yes that's interesting. Also the other thing I suppose about being around for a long time if I can say that without <laughs> sounding rude David um we both have uh, is that you have you know being de- doing this campaign from if you like the analog age right through to the if we think about how campaigning's changed to a much more sort of digital age um you know, you, you, all of the social media explosion has happened during that time. Mm-hmm. But also, you know, frankly, when when I started running the Tobin tax campaign, we were sending out postcards, and um, we I think we did have email campaigns at the time, but they were new. People didn't really know how to use that sort of media, um, and you know. Get, getting in contact with people, keeping in touch with people, Skype didn't exist. So, so many things have changed over that period. Has campaigning really changed, you think? was it basically stayed the same and just the tools have changed slightly? Well, no, I
1: mean, it, it has changed. Um, it is absolutely, um, it's really important for us to service um, our Facebook, Facebook group of 300,000. Um, uh, it's changed. Uh, the other, in other words, the way in which we communicate with people in terms of using Facebook and using Twitter, especially um, the ability to respond very fast to stories, to use um, to use say a very like a thirty-minute um, film for Facebook or something like that to get loads and loads of comments and just generally the engagement uh, which feeds into profile is a very different ball game. And I, I mean, the Robin tax campaign has its coordinator, he spends 90% of his time doing social media, it's like a social media guru. Right. And I, um, by and large, will talk about what um, the central messages are, but totally leave that department to him. But I say that it is both because... Um, recently um, we had um, the Labour Party adopting the financial transaction tax so we got a lot of media so we went and did some YouGov polling this is, we, you could have done that 30 years ago We mm-hmm. would have done some polling yeah. and the results came back saying uh, more than 50% of UK voters of any of the main political parties think that the financial sector should be taxed more that included mm-hmm. the Conservatives and the Lib Dems. So we then did a um, uh, a new advocacy campaign to all of the MPs. Uh, No, sometimes we never bothered with the Conservatives. We went to all of the MPs because we could put at the top of the letter um, exactly that quote, more than 50%, etc., including Conservative voters, etc., to the Conservative MPs. We personalised these letters. We personalised the letters because we can... Do this with which, which is much easier now because we we had eighteen different sorts of letter to two, so to roughly six hundred and fifty MPs, but we could do all of that because it's very easy to do with the computerised technology. But what? But the 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 basic thing behind it using the poll information that could have been done twenty years, thirty years, fifty years ago probably. Um what we did as well was we had within that six hundred and fifty we had decided thirty specifically we were we were targeting either for meetings or how we wanted to move the policy our, our work on, and we hand wrote uh, comp slips to them, and a lot of them have come back to us so I would say it's a combination of things n- n- we should never forget. Old, the old rules that the more personalized the message, mm-hmm. the more likely you are to get a response. So I think I see technology as yes, it's changed the landscape, it's made us more efficient, more capable of being more personalized. But you should never forget a handwritten note is going to get you further than a non-handwritten note. Obviously, the technology has created a whole new branch of campaigning with the advances and thirty-eight degrees and the sort of mass uh, electronic petitioning. I always wonder exactly how much you, how much uh, there are certainly. If you keep doing it and you keep doing enough of them, it's a numbers game. You are going to get something that is going to push through and mm. succeed, uh, and that is that is a kind of. Application of technology, which, which you know, from our, from our point of view, you know, there are members. So there are times at which we want to employ, um, if if we can get a kind of campaigning cycles that fit, we want to. Uh, we want to get an advance to be doing a push exactly when we want to do with a and push. Um, but anyway, I, I yeah. So I would say that I am um, the. The classical ways of succeeding with campaigning haven't really changed,
0: right? Were there any sort of moments or eureka moments where you suddenly you suddenly realised you needed to change tack or a particular tactic would would uh, produce results? I mean, I think that probably the m- most
1: important one there was the approach to use financiers to be the conveyors of the message. So if you are, um, you know, you want to convince politicians that financial transaction tax is a good idea, then if you can get a banker or a former banker to essentially be the advocate, that makes it really compelling and makes it more difficult for them to argue against. Because mm-hmm. after all, the uh, financier is actually the expert in that uh, scenario, and 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 that very much echoed the work that we, we did with the landmines campaign, because at the end of the 90s, when we were working on that, um, many people thought that the argument that won the day in the end was the humanitarian argument, that you know, a landmine couldn't tell the difference between a, a child or a, a combatant, and children got terribly you know, got killed, got injured, etc. But that actually wasn't the winning argument. The winning argument was a military utility argument And that is that it was a bad weapon. Once we recruited uh, former generals to um, basically be conveying, if they had their time again, they would never have used landmines because they couldn't tell the difference between their own soldiers and enemy soldiers. So it was simply a bad weapon. Mm -hmm. That That was a totally compelling argument and politicians couldn't really argue against that. So in a way, learning the lesson from that and saying, well, in our situation, what is, you know, who should be that master message deliverer? And of course, it's a financier or someone who's had major experience uh, in the financial markets. And that, that clearly turns out to be a very useful and important tactic.
0: What's your prediction for the next, let's not say 15 years, let's say five years? Do you think, do you think we'll get... Sort of more of a global movement towards this kind of tax. Is it an inevitability? Do you think it's just a question of? Uh, I time?
1: think that it probably. I think it probably is. Um, I think uh, I would. Uh, I would think that whether you're taxing income or sort of, if you look at, you've got income tax, you've got corporation tax, you've got sales tax or VAT. Um, and you have a certain amount of financial transaction taxes that already exist. Um, and do, in a financialized world, uh, and like the one we have, which is more and more automated, this is actually a very easy tax to implement. Is it fair? Absolutely. Do we need the money to redistribute to need? Absolutely. Um, so I, I think that it ought to just become... Uh, a much more widely applied tax, and then I think in the same way as with income tax, people will look back and go, "Why did it take so long to implement such an obvious tax?"
0: Okay, well, thanks so much, David, for your time, and uh, it's been really interesting hearing you talk about um, all those lessons from from the campaign, and uh, you know, hopefully, won't have to come back in another fifteen years because you'll be moving on and having implemented the tax. We'll see, um, we'll see that happen. But uh, anyway, thanks very much. Oh,
1: it was a pleasure, absolute pleasure.